Hi, and welcome to the Handbag Designer 101 podcast with your host, Emily Blumenthal, handbag designer expert and handbag fairy godmother, where we cover everything about handbags from making, marketing, designing, and talking to handbag designers and industry experts about what it takes to make a successful handbag. Welcome, Tanner Leatherstein, to the Handbag Designer 101 podcast. So happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation and taking the time. I am happy to be here. Good. You should be. Listen, your rise to fame is pretty wild. So why don't you give a quick overview of who you are and what you are and what you do, and then we'll get to the roots and the weeds as to how you got to where you are. Absolutely. Tanner Leatherstein is my personal brand. It's not my actual name. That's usually the first question to clear. That would be too good to be true doing what I do and having that name and last name. So my real name is Vulcan and I was born in Turkey and I think it was about 2009 I moved to the United States out of just a random green card lottery. But for business school, right? No, no. It was a green card lottery that I didn't even apply. Someone did for me. And Ooh, it was who applied total, for you? So that was a company I applied about three, four years prior to that. Uh-huh. And they said I checked the box for them to make it five years in repetition. I forgot. Oh, so you continue yeah. to apply every single year. Yes. And then first year I was waiting and then it didn't happen. I forgot about all that. Yeah, and yeah. To three or third or fourth year, I received this email saying that I want a green card. I was like, oh, let me read this email, how they want to scam me and all that stuff. That's how it started. So Which makes I, sense. <laughs> that's how I came here. And until that point, I was all in leather. I was born into a family on tannery in Turkey. And I was running behind my father in business since I was eight, nine years old. Can I ask so, you something about that? Yeah, absolutely. So where in Turkey are you from? Çanakkale is my hometown, which is the ancient Troy region in the northwest coast. It's mm-hmm. right across Greece. And it's like four or five hours drive from Istanbul. That's where I grew up. That's where we had our tannery. So you grew up in one area and then the family had to drive back and forth to get to the tannery or you guys moved from No, we were we were all in Çanakkale in the tannery town. We (laughs) were living there, but most of our business was in Istanbul. So basically we were going and coming back from Istanbul once a week. It was like just we had um, the whole family places. Mostly my dad, but pretty much every other week we were going as well just for the weekend and things like that. So it was a lot of traveling. How many siblings do you have? I have a brother. He's still in Turkey. And currently, my brand, Pegai, he's doing the manufacturing, crafting. In the same building that used to be our tannery, now we turned it into a workshop. Well, you knew the owner, right? Of the buildings. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So difficult. Yes. Wow. So So was it understood that you would go into the family business per se? Or did you want to? Or was it like, hey, this is Vulcan, like, welcome to the business? I was dying to. My dad really enjoyed having me around, but I was the one dying to get in. They had to convince me to go to college. I was ready to drop out at high school and, you know, just go full into leather tanning. But they forced me like, you have to go to college and get a degree. And that's how I got a degree eventually in business. It's it's Um, a good thing they did. Yes, yes, absolutely. Then it led me to get my MBA here and all that. Without a college degree, I wouldn't be able to do anything. You couldn't do that. So did you immediately work with your dad? Like through college, after college? Was it like, okay, here, Baba, I'm here. Like you can't get to me. Basically, it was during high school. I was very involved. I was 
technically running the tannery because my dad was always traveling. I was the one taking care of the production in tannery, even though I was in high school, after school, during, you know, breaks, I was just on my phone doing the the work. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Was that weird for the workers? Because I'm sure they had worked for your dad for the whole time. Because turnover at factories is really low over there, right? It's the same families work there year after year. And here's the kid, the son of the owner, who's telling me what to do. Well... It didn't feel weird to me. At <laughs> the beginning, it was a little uncomfortable, you know, sometimes having tough conversations with 50-year-old masters in the tannery because right. nobody else is there. I, I got used to it. And I don't think they took it weirdly because I was always there. They were used to me. They, they kind of right. saw me like the kid. Grow up. He was always around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So what did they make in the tannery? Was it specific to one thing or the other? Was it bad? Like, what was it? Mainly we were doing lamb sheep skins for garment production. That was our main line, either in a Napa format without the hair, like the ones you see behind me. And right, right. Or then we start making the double face, we call it, which we keep the hair on the sheepskin as well, that right. you can make the jackets that has the fur as well. So we right, were right, mainly right. doing that. But as some side projects requested, we were doing goat skins and some cow hides for different productions as well, including rabbits and different things I've experimented in tannery. You know, considering where you are now and coming from another country, I'm sure wastage was something that did not exist, right? Like any fall off or anything, like there was always a way to find something to do with it, right? Exactly. The essence of leather business is that basically the raw hide is a wastage. If you don't touch it within the hour after the animal is slaughtered, it's just a trash. And it's it's a trash that could be infectious. You know, it, it needs to be handled carefully. It starts putrefying right away. We take it, we salt it, and then the tank process starts so it can get a second life as leather. So once you are in this industry, you always look at things like nothing should go to waste. Right. And in fact, that's what happens in, in leather. Even the wastage from the tanning process goes back to sub-industries, turning into different things. You know, right. it, sometimes you might see what goes in there. It could be disgusting, imagining that's going to turn into a makeup product or things like that, or yeah. maybe even food ingredient. But nothing is wasted in the industry. And that, that was a good way to learn making stuff, I think. It's so fascinating because I think the background you have, right? There are so many people nowadays who aspirationally want to become designers, want to become creators. And one of the things I always say amongst other people is get experience working for someone else so you understand the process, like, you know, the back end. Because my first job was in media and someone said you'd never open up a clothing store if you didn't know how to shop. And that stayed with me, right? Because you have to know how to buy. You have to know the process from inception. I mean, from this case, from the farm. So having this experience, it's like it puts you a hundred steps ahead already without even probably being aware of that. Exactly. I wasn't aware of that. I was only in the tanning side up until 2016, 2017. I know how to take a rawhide and make it into leather. And we were selling it to shoemakers, garment makers, or handbag makers. But I haven't done anything further than that. So it's extremely valuable, though, like getting experience from the designers, working with them, understanding the creation process, because it's an entirely different world. Again, I'm trying to learn every day now mm-hmm. for the past six, seven years. But knowing the leather in depth, as I had the privilege it's to intimately. learn... Yes. And the network you accumulate in the past 20, 25 years, all 
leather makers, tanneries around the world, like where you can find what, who does best what, right. is immensely helpful cool. when you try to design something. You know, I know where I'm going to get that exact specific material yeah. that I need here. Can I ask you, though, just from an expert perspective, and I spoke about this in my book, but I had to actually go to an expert because this wasn't knowledge that I had. In your personal opinion, which hides and skins and animals are best for which silhouettes? Can you just share those nuggets of gold with us? And I think and it's so many designers make leather based backpacks. And to me, in my opinion, always think that's always a waste because they always sell the least, right? Unless it's a name brand. Because at the end of the day, the function of a backpack is to overstuff and to carry. They're less fashion forward, again, unless it's a label. Do you have an opinion on that? And also which skins for what bodies? So it is a very deep subject. But we could talk about this all day. This is so my jam. You don't even know. Like, forget your whole history. So in terms of which leathers and skins do you think? And I know it's a loaded and long answered question, but just for the neophytes listening, what would you say? So I think if I have to generalize. Yeah, purely generalizing. Make something that is soft. It doesn't have to hold a lot of former structure. And we're talking about bags here. Lambskin is absolutely perfect. You know, it has a soft, nice touch. It's a good material that definitely distinct in feeling and look. Yeah, it's lighter. Yeah, lighter. It's delicate. It's harder to keep. Probably it's not going to last as long as a cowhide, but that would be nice if you're working with a soft silhouette. If you're going to work with something that needs to hold its shape, which most of the fashion bags has to, you know, in the fancy space, then cow and calf works a little better because it's a more strict fiber structure. We can tan it in a way that will hold itself. Almost never we completely rely on the fashion space to have the leather keep the form. We use the support materials inside, but of course using cow and calf goes a long way. Calf is absolutely preferred over cow hides because a younger skin has a finer grain structure. As long as the finish is not overly covering it, you can enjoy it more, has a better touch, a lot softer, almost like you touched your skin when you're 15 years old, it feels different. When you're four years old, it feels different. So calf and cow is kind of that touch and look feel. I, I always explain to people that you're buying skins and it's going to change and evolve over time, just like yours, like whether it's the oils, whether it's the exposure, whether it's the light. And always to remember that you are buying as and people cringe, but it is a skin, the end. Absolutely. It, it is a skin. It's just turned into a way that's not going to petrify forever right. almost, but it is a skin at the end of the day. And especially what with, I always try to preach, the minimally finished leathers, that's where we can enjoy the natural characteristics of leather. As long as the finish is not covering what's underneath, we will get to enjoy that natural creation of that skin. So right. definitely cow hides is more for the form than structured silhouettes. And we talked about backpacks. If we're going to do a backpack, I think think my go-to is again cowhide because of durability you know even if you stuff it stretch it right. uh, it could be like semi-soft maybe tumbled leathers with some pebbled grains but i would like to see some waterproofing done in the tannery side because it's going to be out there you know adventurous types may carry this that would be the, my <laughs> go-to material in leather backpack area perfect oh, such good nuggets people are going to need to listen to this a hundred times so you're in Turkey. And again, I apologize for doing a deep, deep dive on you. So you went from Turkey and then you went to Armenia, which so cool. How yes. is 
you were in Yerevan, right? So yeah, I was in Yerevan for about six months, right before I moved to the States. Prior to that, I was in Turkmenistan running a tannery for about a year. And that's where I got my green card lottery notification. Wild. And how, how I ended up there was in 2007, my dad decided to move our tannery to Turkmenistan. So you from went Turkey. with it. Yes, I went with it. At the time, I was in China actually doing some leather buying, sourcing, consulting for some companies in Turkey. How did your dad feel about that? Or he was like, go for it. Well, he always let me do whatever I wanted. And he loved that experience. He was learning with me too there. But my plan was to stay in China for a longer time. But as soon as I heard he's moving the tannery, he was going to need me to run it there. And then I just came back and joined the Manistan. That was about a year of torture and disaster. We left everything. It was insane corruption. And green card lottery was my ticket out of that hell. And then I went to Yerevan to wait for my green card visa, ran another tannery there for about six months, and then I came here. It's funny. I worked in Russia for a couple of years, and there's so much opportunity coupled with as soon as you get successful in countries like that, the government always gets involved. And because they always know when somebody starts becoming successful, and then they come in and either inform you they're getting half, demand that they're getting half, or that they're getting the larger portion of it, and that you have no stake or claim to it as a result of not being a native to the country. So absolutely. It's tricky, you know, and the funny thing is that you as a manufacturer were only trying to do good by the country to get more exports for them. Exactly. That was my experience in Turkmenistan. So it's kind of tricky. We went there because we were thinking the leather is there. There's not enough tanneries in the country. Like an untapped market. Exactly. We can process the leather. We can export it out of this country. Definitely bringing revenue here. But of course, we're not going to do it for free. Our goal is to make Make money money. too because it's a cheaper country. You know, we have our interest as well. But the point we miss is that the things we don't see in the first glance, that corruption and, you know, illegal things getting involved as soon as you start your operation there. And that's what happened. You know, every day, a different part of government was showing up (laughs) for another bribe. And for about a year, we tried to work, but they didn't let us. And we just left everything and get out of it. Everything. It's like you built this whole thing and you're like hopping on a plane one day back to Turkey, like, okay, well, that was interesting. And that was it. That's it. That's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) So then you went to Armenia, where you're like, hey, Baba, I'm going to Armenia. Like, see you in a bit. I'm going to figure like wait some time out until I go to the US? No, this was actually basically end of the year in Turkmenistan. We realized this is not happening. And we met an Armenian person, a tradesperson in Turkmenistan. He was doing a lot of deals with government and, you know, in the region. And he happened to know a businessman in Armenia who owned the tannery, but couldn't run it for so long. He was looking for a partnership to run it together. That's how we ended up transitioning to Armenia in that context. Did your dad go with you? Or it was yeah, yeah, we were we were together. Like even my whole family, like my, even my mom was there for a while with us. Yeah, <laughs> my wow. brother. That's it. Like you guys were leather nomads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you just as a, a functional question, having, you know, as an American, we are not historically known for having linguistic strength. I happened to be lucky enough to study a bunch of languages growing up. What did you speak in all these countries? 
while I don't speak Russian, I kind of got used to a little bit in my Turkmenistan and Armenian experience, you know, just a few words in Russian. But none of us, my dad, my brother, spoke Russian at the moment. My brother was the most advanced, all of us. He studied in Uzbekistan for about a year, and he was able to communicate at the basic level when we were there. Right now, he's fully fluent. His wife is Russian, so he's completely running his life in Russian now. But at the time, we didn't speak Russian. In Turkmenistan, it wasn't too difficult. Their language, Turkmen language, is very close to Turkish, 70-80%. Same base, they understand us, so it wasn't difficult. That's how we got by, and Armenia, we just had some translators going around with us. So no English? No, yeah, the English is not that common there. They, yeah, it doesn't help much. (laughs) Wow, that's so fascinating because as an American, you know, one would assume Turkey, Turkmenistan, that there would be some sort of connection. I mean, obviously, historically there is, but you never know, right? So like, what is it? Norwegian, I think, is the only language that has no historical connection to anything. It's one of those Scandinavian countries. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But Turkish has that connections. Actually, I heard this. You could start traveling east from Turkey and you can reach to China while just speaking Turkish because all the countries you're going to pass if you're on the right path will speak a foreign of Turkish. That's wild. So look yeah. at you. So you're covered <laughs> if you keep going east, right? <laughs> yeah. But I learned my lesson. I think I'm not going to continue that. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, all right, you're in Armenia, green card comes through, then you just end up in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I was in New Jersey briefly first, like six months. Um, that makes sense. One should always start in New Jersey. Like, what, yeah. Yeah. I've been there for a couple summers for summer program in my college before we call it work and travel. And from that time, I knew an Italian family, like crazy smart businessman, one of the smartest businessmen I've ever seen. I learned a lot from him. So I came to New Jersey, start working with him, uh, working for him. He was doing textile business. It was quite boring for six months for me in the summer town of Jersey. And I was looking for a little bit more friends and stuff like that. And I in a suburb I- of New Jersey, here you've traveled the world through all this chaos, and now you're like in the suburb with the backyard, yeah, why having would- to drive for a coffee because <laughs> they didn't have good coffee there either, I'm sure. So, well, they were Italian, so they should have, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everything was fine. The social life was a little lacking, and that's why I ended up in Chicago, which I loved, and I was there for nine years. But why not New York City if you're so close? I was going back and forth almost every day. My Jersey work was intense. I was waking up 4 a.m. every day and coming back home about midnight. So like four hours sleep, six months. I was driving a huge truck delivering textiles to New York, Philadelphia, and back to New Jersey every day. So that was insane. Yeah. Uh, I didn't enjoy New York with that kind of schedule, so I (laughs) didn't want to That's it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it must have been Central Jersey if that was the case, if you had that commute. South Jersey. South Jersey. So fun. Oh, God, that breaks my heart. I know that drive. It's not a fun one. Oh, no. No, you go past the Meadowlands and you're like, oh, I still have so much longer to go. Exactly. The New Jersey Garden State Parkway ends where I get home. That kind of thing. Like, it's it's crazy. Yeah, that's a hard pass. I would have gone to Chicago, too, because that's like (laughs) city light. So you got your MBA in Chicago. Did you go there and then apply or you were like, no. 
I was a cab driver for three and a half years in Chicago, like (gasps) full-time cab driver. From my friend's suggestions, I started that and trying to establish a new life here. I don't know what I'm going to do. Leather is not a huge thing in US, especially tanneries. So cab driving paid the bills three and a half years. I met a lot of consultants with the cab business. And first time I'm hearing about consulting, I'm asking now, what do you guys do? They say, we basically solve business problems. Like, that sounds interesting. How can I become a consultant? (laughs) Probably easiest way is to get an MBA. That's how I started to thinker and switch to MBA after the cab driver thing. Wow. So were you still driving a cab and getting your MBA? No, I did a full-time MBA in the University of Lillinay-Champaign, Urbana-Champaign. Um, uh-huh. So I moved to Champaign full-time, two years MBA program. And then I got a consulting job, came back to Chicago. Where you tell people what to do. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> that was my first corporate job. Did it kill you? America. It did. It only lasted a year. Like I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not made for this. Yeah. I was actually tired of not having anything to do. I'm trying to look like I'm working. I'm doing something. I was just smoking mirrors. <laughs> I was started to question like, why are they paying me so much money? You know, I'm not creating value. I just felt super uncomfortable, and I ended up quitting without knowing what I'm going to do next. So wow. So in 2016, you started Pagai. So how did that happen? Like, were you still day jobbing at that point? No. So I quit the consulting. I went back to Uber driving because, you know, I'm familiar with the cab concept in Chicago. I'm making a living for the first month or two. And I'm thinking, how can I go back to leather? Because I missed it at this point. It's been about almost eight years now. I'm far from leather. And I realized this Etsy thing, people are, you know, doing wallets and selling it. I'm like, oh, this sounds like a profitable thing, but I don't know how to design a wallet. I don't know how to make a wallet. So I got into YouTube, you know, the Uber driving, waiting at the airports, YouTubing, how to design wallet, learning how to use the Illustrator and how to do saddle stitching at home. So that's I'm going to buy, listen, I'm buying the rights to your life because this is going to make a movie and I'm, I'm here for it. I, I called it first. That is amazing. You know, and I got to say, coming from where you came from as a true immigrant, right? There's no shame in doing anything that helps you make money. It is what everything's a means to an end. Like there's nothing, you know, like you needed money. You had this amazing MBA. You've traveled the globe. The now what? But the fact that you were like, I can still do both and have something basically pay me while I figure it out is pretty incredible. Right. And, you know, being an immigrant, probably it's easier for us to realize this. America is a great place to have all these opportunities for you as long as you want to make it happen. Yeah. There is limitless things yeah. you can work on, learn, and turn it into a profession and yeah. make a great living out of. So I was fortunate enough to be here to do all this stuff. You know, you can't do this in Turkey. You can't do this yeah. in nowhere else, basically, no. I can say. No, I mean, I totally, totally agree with you. I worked in Moscow and then I worked in London and even working in London to see the differences, like, you know, one who doesn't know any better, but coming from a country that is a uniform government and how it's run historically, like no one's changing anything there. They really aren't. But America was founded on privatization. So with that, it kind of messes with the system, right? Because we really have a system that isn't a system. But with that kind of space, it allows you to do whatever you want. It's there for the taking. Exactly. Exactly. So that's not only me. That's the environment making it possible. So 
that's definitely a great so, advantage. So here you are, you figured out how to make wallets. Was that kind of like, it must have been hilarious to you. Like, hey, I know how to make the leather, but I don't know how to make any product with it. It's frustrating. So you I understand whether... I'm like, this, these wallets look simple. We're talking Etsy wallets, right? Like it's yeah. layers of leather put together and it's simple. But if you don't know, you don't know. I have to go in and then learning how to draw things with Illustrator, then print it out, cut it. Did you have to teach leather. yourself Illustrator? Yes, yes. Like everything is, is basically from YouTube. Like I'm watching people who are sharing their knowledge, which I appreciate. And soon I tried a few di different designs. I'm like, oh, they don't look that good. You know, they don't look as good as the ones on Etsy, but I improved. I made like 10, 15, 20 different. And I'm still thinking nobody would buy this, but hey, I'm going to put it on. You know, I'm, I don't care. I put it on Etsy and I got an order. And then I got another one the next day. I got two the other day. I got three the next day. I'm like, hold on, this is interesting. Now we're talking with my brother. He's not doing anything either in Turkey. Now our factory building is abandoned, you know, completely in trash condition since we moved. I said, why don't you guys make this? And I focus on design and selling and marketing. And that's how we started. So, Can I ask you though, were you able to figure out correct pricing? Because the shipping alone, you know, it's tricky, right? Like, you know how to cost out the materials, but to cost yeah. out the labor, the time value that it takes to put into the product and then have it ship it over. Was that something that you had to learn? Like, did you have any oh, hiccups yeah. on that? Because I'm sure in itself, it's like, wait, I undercharged. Wait, I overcharged. Wait, the shipping. I didn't even think about the shipping cost. So initially it was, yeah, everything is new. Like, I have no right. idea how to send a product from Turkey to you or how much it's going to cost. The customs, tax, the procedures, I have no clue. But or things the, getting lost if you think, like, let me save some money and ship it with a national mail service and yeah, it never shows up. <laughs> exactly. It never showed up. We lost most hope. And then two months later, it showed, showed yeah. up. Like, oh, okay, here it is. <laughs> but regardless, we started using DHL, the most reliable so far in my experience. Right. And I was like, oh, it's not that difficult. And because I did my pricing when I was making my wallets in my apartment in Chicago with saddle stitching, you know, my pricing was not cheap. Because it took so much time for me to make anything, you know, hand right. cutting and sewing. Right. Now, once we turn into producing in Turkey, my pricing, I was able to actually take it down a notch because I'm still profitable covering all the making and shipping of it using the best leather I could get my hands on. And the pricing worked out basically. Probably fully handmade beginning gave me a good pricing structure understanding. And then I was able to take my prices a little bit down because I found... I mean, more affordable ways to make the same product, better product, actually. So did you put it on your brother at some point to say, okay, find someone who could make this stuff for us because I can't keep making it? Well, yeah, that's why we got a sewing machine that we don't even know how to use a sewing machine. You know, we couldn't control it. It goes so fast. I was turning with my hand in Turkey first, first trip, and then he's holding the thing. And we ended up hiring a person who knows how to use a sewing machine. Right. And my dad, him, and the, the sewing guy, they started making these and ship, shipping it to me. Me and my wife is doing the personalization, packaging, shipping from our Chicago apartment at did the she, beginning. That's how we got Did she have a say in this or you were like, hey, by the way, <laughs> I need you to oh, get involved? No, she supported me from every beginning of every adventure we're very close i'm very fortunate to be you know be with my wife 24 hours we're still like that she works from home she's a consultant but she as a consultant 
Yes, and she's <laughs> coming to my workshop every morning with me, helps with anything she can when she has free time. And we come back home, we play with our kids. You know, we're 24 hours literally together every day and we love it. Like we couldn't change it. Like that's how... Thank God, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't work for a lot of yeah. couples, I know. So. <laughs> Oh my God. No, that's a tricky dance in itself. So how did you end up in Texas? And how did you end up with Pagai? Like, when did you say, okay, we're going to call it Pagai? And by the way, we're moving to Texas. So that's interesting. The original brand was going to be Leatherstein. And I had a little hiccup when I was opening my Etsy store. I couldn't get that name. And I had to think of something else. Pagai is my hometown in Turkey. Its ancient Greek name was Pegai. Right now it's called Biga. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take that. And I found the domain was available for a premium purchase. I bought it because it was short, sweet, and it had a meaning yeah. for me that that's how it started. And within the first year or two, we had to get a small workshop in Chicago. You know, the orders were coming in. We had an employee and all that stuff. And in Turkey, we had a team of maybe 10 artisans working with us. Wow. Yeah, it grew pretty quickly. And I think it was 2019. I was absolutely done with the cold weather in Chicago. For the past 12 months, we were just looking for where can we move? A, a warmer climate, you know, somewhere that makes sense because I can move my business. It's flexible. Right, right, right. Uh, we checked a bunch of places, California, Florida, Washington, Houston, Seattle, all that stuff. And we came to Dallas and we were like, okay, that's it. <laughs> and we were almost about to have our first kid. And I wanted to have it in a bigger space, you know, not in an apartment in Chicago. So we made a quick decision to move to Dallas in 2009 uh, summer. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So you named the brand Pagai. You're making money. You're employing people in Turkey. You're employing people domestically. You and your wife are home, baby, making wallets, small other goods or slugs, as some of them call. Had you moved to regular bags at that point or just... You no, know. not the handbags in the fashion sense. We were doing more like this is more of an Etsy Amazon business at this stage still. Right. Uh, we have our own website, but most of the things, designs are basic. There's no inner supports and things like that. The bag right. you can find on Etsy. And the code happened and all that stuff. You know, we had to close, run everything in our garage here for a not while. Anything you were, but that's not anything you weren't already familiar with. It was no, like yeah, a I hiccup had... and you've been there, done that. Oh, right away, we figured it out. Like that was actually, you know, worked out just fine. We actually seeing an increase in the orders. Probably people were shopping more because they were home and all that stuff. Right. It was really busy with three-month-old baby in hand, but well, we handled it. With, That's with good. You need more than just a baby to do, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... This takes us to your TikTok awakening, I guess we could call it. What was that moment? So this was actually a personal realization happened in 2020. We took a trip to Maui, Hawaii with my son and you know my wife. I don't know what happened there, but on the way back, I had to write this down. It came to me so clearly in my mind in the airplane. I had to open my notes app and I have to write it down. I'm like, Do you know something I, that when you're flying, your mind is much more stimulated? They say for anybody who's working or has a creative mind, never sleep on a plane because your best ideas will always come when you're flying. FYI. Really? I, first it, time I heard this, but that's tracks. the experience. I experienced it. I put it down on a paper. I realized 
I'm here to help people understand leather because putting all the dots together in my life, whoever know my involvement with leather, they've been asking me, hey, I got this leather jacket, I got this shoe, belt, bag, whatever you name it. Can you look? Is it good? Did I pay too much? You know, is it real? Is it fake? Right. At that moment, I'm like, people love leather. Everybody wants to use it, but they don't really know enough to be comfortable with making their own decisions. Sometimes they feel like they're cheated. So I'm here to help them understand this material a little bit better and I can use social media. So that was kind of the clarity of purpose came to me. Up until that point, I was dabbling in everything. You know, I was buying a CNC machine, trying to learn different things. Like I, I'm a handy person. I love doing woodwork. Like I have tools and things trying to explore so many things. But after that clarity, I'm not looking at anything else. It's only leather for me. That was like, mm-hmm. I realized why I was here. And that's how that video thing started. I've been experimenting with different ways to convey leather information to people in different videos since then. But the first one, video happened last year, last August, when I was talking about Chanel and their wallet and, you know, it exploded and people start asking, can you review this? Can you do that? And I've been just following it. That's crazy. Now, I am, as I affectionately have referred to myself as Garmento offspring. So my father was a converter in the garment center, garment district. So he would buy gray goods, you know, the big drums, the big rolls, as I'm sure you're familiar, and then send them to factories and mills to get dyed. And then he would then resell them. He was the middleman. Now, as everybody or you know, the middleman at this point, other than in Europe, there really are no more converters because people go straight to factories. That step has been wiped out. Thank God that's the case because he used to travel only in the US where there was domestic production. Like I remember someone had paid him in cowboy boots once, a factory, you know? (laughs) So understanding, you know, we were never allowed to have labels growing up because we were always taught the cost of goods. Like, oh, you know, the markup on this is insane. No, you don't need the real guest jeans. No, you don't need the real this. Like we would get the closeouts, the seconds, even in some cases, the knockoffs, like, you know, one leg was longer than the other or whatever. Like, ah, my mom's like, I can fix that. So this whole essence of understanding and always looking at product made by independence has really impacted me by looking at name brands because I have friends who, much like you know, who didn't grow up the way theoretically we did and don't look at these high-end products and saying like, the markup on this is insane. I know how much this is a yard. Like I'm not spending a 2000 markup just because they smack a logo on it. And that's what drew me to you because I'm like, he gets it. He gets it. But you know, that's obviously not going to change. We are a consumer public. That's who we are as, as a people, as a culture, especially, you know, anybody, once you have a, an element of means, the whole point of it is letting other people know. Exactly. So the fact that you're decrypting it is like, oh, you're the beacon. So <laughs> I think that's why I clicked with people because so many of us kind of knows that's not worth it from a material standpoint, right? Like they know how much it can cost. Probably not exactly, but they have a clue. It's not going to be $3,000 for that much leather. But some people are still questioning because leather is a tricky material. It has been associated with luxury thousands of years. You know, all the kings and warriors wore it because it was rare, expensive. Nowadays, it's not the case. It's really not that expensive. But big brands really still play on that historical luxury essence of leather to create that mystical 
you know, yeah. quality. So oh, yeah. we're, this is $3,000. Probably it's awesome leather, incredible. That's what I wanted to tell people. It's not really about leather. These I have huge respect for these brands. What they created are amazing. It's super difficult. Yeah. But they are not in the leather business. They are in the prestige For, business. They're in the branding business. Exactly. They engineer a luxury onto a leather bag because it's a great medium to carry the luxury on it. Correct. And it is super hard to engineer that luxury, by the way. I'm not, you know, 100% overlooking that. 100%. I can't do that. Probably nobody else can do that. There's only 10, 20 brands who have done it successfully. And that's it. You know, that's the price you have to pay if you yep. want to buy that. And there is a huge demand for it too. People who buy that stuff there, they know they're buying status. They know they're not buying just a bag. Right. Some of whom may be trying to justify a little too much. You know, it's super high quality and it's great design, but it's all biased because you're paying so much money. You're trying to convince yourself it's great. Now, I'm not saying they're bad. Most of them are really well made and, you know, good, but they're not exceptional. Well, it's um, kind of like buying a regular house in a good neighborhood. That's essentially what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so were there any surprises from everything that you've done from this deconstructing that you were like, I didn't even know this about these certain brands or were there any things that you were like, oh my God, who knew? Absolutely. No, I'm making a video actually. I'm working on it this week. It's like after spending this much money, what did I learn from all these dissections? So I'm going to make a YouTube video. And a few of these things, like it changed my perspective. If you look at my first videos, if you talked to me last year, I would be a little bit more judging against these brands, I'll be like, it's absolutely not worth it, you know, because right, right, right. I have my own perspective right? and I'm a little too strong, maybe borderline judging people who are buying this stuff. That's fair. But now, after looking at all these brands, I see the value. I confirmed it for myself. It's not about the material quality or, or craftsmanship, you know, it cannot be. But I started to see who buys this and why they buy it and how difficult it is to create something like that. My respect to their customers, my respect to the brands grew immensely. I definitely understand both sides, even though I'm still keeping my own perspective on things. I'm not a buyer of those brands, but I definitely understand it a lot more. And another learning is most of the luxury brands are really just nothing that special, mm -hmm. with exception of a, a few. You know, Hermes, I have huge respect for their leather selections. And, you know, a little bit extra craftsmanship practices, the saddle stitching and all that stuff. We'll but take they were, I mean, if you go back to Hermes's history of being the first, I think they were the ones who came up with the first true travel bag that, God, I'm going to get my history mixed up. So if anybody hears this, I, I apologize. But the founder of Hermes, I believe he went to like the Ford factory in Detroit and learned that the possibility of from seeing the cars and the seats, then gave him the idea that he could use those bags, use the leathers in a different way, that it could be used in a more travel sturdy way. And his wife was the one that requested it. Really? I didn't know that. This is a great piece of- I have this giant, giant dossier. I have this giant, giant, and then there was some sort of conflict. I have to go back and look at which silhouette this is, and this is going to kill me because there's a name. But then there's two different brands that fought over who was the creator of this. And I'll, I'll let you know, but I have this giant dossier of the history of the handbag that I always like to defer to for moments like this, that there's a reason why certain brands are better at it because historically they've been doing it and have had a means to perfect it. And those people within their factory or their ateliers have been doing it for hundreds of years because then their child comes through as just like you. Right, right. Uh, definitely there is this generational knowledge transfer. It's, it's 
incredibly important in leathercraft. So definitely Hermes deserves a huge respect from a material craftsmanship standpoint out of all those luxury brands. Bottega with their unique designs and, you know, difficult yeah. silhouettes, I have huge respect. Their leather selections are usually good. But one caveat there is like, you can't trust one of these brands at all times for everything yeah. they say. Yeah. Because one of the wallets I got from Bottega, I was using it without doubting. They said it's calfskin. I was enjoying it up until I cut it up and removed the finish. I realized it was a split covered with a PU top, which most people call genuine leather these days. You know, it's a stretch of imagination to call it a calfskin. I was shocked, you know, more normally they're using exceptional leathers. Why did you do this here? Like, it's not worth it. This is a $600 wallet. Yeah. Just use the calfskin. So those are the like interesting learnings I had with this yeah. adventure and I enjoyed every minute. <laughs> That's so funny. Can I ask you something? Just selfishly, I want to know what kind of bag does your wife carry? Oh, my, well, my poor wife now curious. Whatever design I made, and it's going really fast these days. Use Marketing. Feedback. Yeah, like prototype. No, actually prototype feedback. It's, uh, she's the, taking it for a test drive. That's what I'm yes, saying. Exactly. Test drive. She's a test drive. Like, and because so much of it coming out fast these days, she only has like a week to carry one. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> And some of the bags I buy for dissection, she carries those too and to give me a little bit of feedback for the user standpoint. So it changes a lot, like it changes a lot. But the bags she really loves that I got for her was Bottega bags so far. And there we go. Well, I won't call you Vulcan. So no, 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 it's fine. Okay. Walton Tanner, it's, it's the okay. same. <laughs> so Tanner Leatherstein, thank you so very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Oh, I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. It's fun to remember the memory something. It's <laughs> listen, the roots. I, I'm not kidding. I'm gonna like the when there's a movie made about you, I'm gonna be behind it one way or another because I love a good handbag adventure, and this is, this is definitely <laughs> one of them. So how can people? We'll follow you, learn more, and get all this good stuff. Absolutely. We keep doing short videos on TikTok and Instagram, and handle is edtenner.leatherstein on both platforms. And on YouTube, same handle, edtenner.leatherstein. We do short and longer videos with a little mm -hmm. bit more entertainment and information. That's where I do the informative content. And my own brand, Pegai, is at pegai.com. Everything we create is going to be available there. They can sign up for the newsletter for every week, new, new designs coming up these days. E-E-G-A-I, just in case. And you should call it the newsletter, not the newsletter, just so you know. Yes, newsletter. Yeah, I was actually checking the domain name if it was available. Like it's, it's, it would be a cool trademark, newsletter. It would, it would. <laughs> well... Listen, I think the people at the USPTO.gov are sick of me and they have my voice with a line through it because I call them so much to ask questions. I'm like, hey, so what do you think about this? And they're like, we are not here to field your conversational requests about what you think you should do with the business or a brand. I'm like, yeah, but we're already on the phone. Like, let's talk a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, thank you idea. so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to see what you do next and we will absolutely be keeping in touch. Yes, we will be in touch. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review and follow us on every single platform at Handbag Designer. Thanks so much. See you next time.